Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. For centuries, heresy hunters have labeled those who deny the pre-existence of Jesus adoptionists. This ancient category was based on the idea that some Christian groups denied the virgin birth, thinking instead that Jesus became the Son of God at his baptism when God adopted him. Modern scholars such as Bart Ehrman and Michael Byrd employ this term to describe several early Unitarian Christian groups. My guest today is Dr. Jeremiah Coogan, a scholar of the New Testament and early Christianity. He's written a really helpful journal article analyzing the early so-called adoptionist groups. His conclusion? None of them actually qualifies as adoptionists. Here now is episode 523, Rethinking Adoptionism, with Professor Jeremiah Coogan. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Jeremiah Coogan. He's the Assistant Professor of New Testament at the Jesuit School of Theology. He has a PhD from Notre Dame in Christianity and Judaism in Antiquity. Welcome to Restitutio. So glad to talk with you today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk about adoptionism. It is. I can't wait. It's going to be a blast. Today we're talking about your article, Rethinking Adoptionism, an argument for dismantling a dubious category. All I can say is about time. You published this in the Scottish Journal of Theology earlier this year, and in this article you label adoptionism as a problematic anachronism. So not all of my listeners are fully familiar with adoptionism. So what is adoptionism? Can we just begin with that and just briefly describing it? Yeah. So I don't think adoptionism exists, but scholars have a definition anyway. And rather than giving you my own sort of off-the-cuff definition, I'll read the definition that Bart Ehrman, one of the major scholarly proponents for the idea of adoptionism, gives. So here's what Ehrman says. Adoptionists believed that Christ was a full flesh and blood human being who was neither preexistent nor, for most adoptionists, born of a virgin. He was born and he lived as all other humans, but at some point in his existence, usually his baptism, Christ was adopted by God to stand in a special relationship with himself and to mediate his will on the earth. Or more succinctly, adoptionism is a theory where a fully human Jesus becomes divine. That's the basic logic. And crucially, this is understood as being tied to divine sonship, particularly. Whether that moment of transition from human to divine happens at baptism, at resurrection. Occasionally, it's imagined as happening at ascension. This is a scholarly imagination, but the key criteria are that there's a really human Jesus who becomes divine, and that movement from human to divine is conjoined with God's adopting of Jesus as the Son of God. So Jesus becomes God's Son. Jesus becomes God's Son in that transition from human to divine. That's that's the theory. He's not born a son. Well, he's, a, he's the son of somebody. But yes, he, he's neither preexistent nor initially divine. He, in this theory, goes from being a flesh and blood human to being divine. Right. So can you describe the problem with modern scholars retrojecting Nicene controversies into earlier Christian history? Sure. No one disputes that 
there were a range of ideas about who Jesus was, about the relationship between his relationship to God, and about the nature of his humanity. It's very clear that early Christians were having debates about the nature of Jesus's humanity, the nature of Jesus's divinity. Some early Christ followers did not think of Jesus as divine. How early and who is a matter for debate, but it's clear that there were different understandings of Jesus' identity, the relationship between Jesus' humanity or divinity. Some argued for one, for the other, or for various ways of understanding the relationship between the two. So that's clear enough that there is a variety of early Christian thinking about who Jesus is, and that Christians are having these debates about who is Jesus, how do we understand who he is. The problem is when you push back the debates of the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea, about Jesus as begotten, not made, into earlier periods, where the governing frame for understanding all earlier Christologies is the specter of Arianism. Now, it's not entirely clear even that Arius the real fourth century guy, was an Arian in the ways that this is sometimes understood. But the basic question of the Nicene Christological debate is about the way in which Jesus is created or instead begotten. Is Jesus created? Is Jesus begotten? And all of these earlier questions about how Jesus relates to God and about how to talk about divine sonship, which is, of course, at some level, a metaphor. That is, it's using human experience and the ways that we encounter the world to describe Jesus's relationship with God. And this gets sort of squeezed into the debates about Arius's theology and about whether Jesus is begotten or made. And unfortunately, when you squeeze everything else into that debate, the actual particularities of the earlier questions and conversations and discussions get lost. Yeah. And in the second century, I kind of think of it as the Wild West holding to the side for a moment whether there actually was a Wild West in America, that's not really my point. Uh, but it's sort of like the Wild West of church history where you have all of these different ideas. There's no sheriff really in town to corral everyone. And uh, there's this just the art of persuasion is, is your only weapon. I think it's such a fascinating period to study. So I'm very interested in it. Well, I think it's worth saying that some of the people who have subsequently come to be understood as authoritative and significant church fathers, people like Irenaeus or Justin Martyr, or even Origen, might not have quite passed muster with the councils of the fourth and fifth centuries. Whereas other people who have in the long run ended up on the sort of outside of histories of Christian orthodoxy are actually not always very far away from the people who do end up inside. And they're asking questions that are important and formative for what becomes later Christian orthodoxy. The questions that so-called Ebionites are asking are real questions that people are grappling with. The questions that Theodotus and friends, who we'll talk about shortly, are grappling with are questions that actually are still questions at the Council of Nicaea and beyond. It's easy to sort of tell histories where there's the inside and there's the outside and here, we, we don't actually have an inside or an outside. We just have a lot of conversations. Yeah. I think a lot of times church historians will talk about second or third century people, their Christologies, in such a way that they're, you know, they're, oh, they're hinting at the Trinity or they're, you know, but I, my, my point is, I don't think they're really hinting at it. You know, they they just believe what they believe. And it's it's one step that, you know, you could argue is on the way to a, a different understanding 
it's not like Justin Martyr when he died. He was like, you know, I, I, I kind of got close. You know, he probably thought he had a correct understanding of, you know, God and Christ and so forth. So you argue that there may have existed adoptionists somewhere in the anti-Nicene period, but we have no evidence for them. What right. about Serenthus? Well, can, can I take that first point about the nature of evidence first, though? Yeah. So as a historian, it's really hard to prove a negative. It's really hard to prove that something never possibly existed. Me saying that I cannot prove there was never, ever an adoptionist anywhere is not the same as conceding that there probably were adoptionists somewhere. It's simply to say evidence doesn't really let us fully exclude things. There is no evidence for them. That doesn't mean that, well, it's still probably true that they were out there. No, it doesn't mean that. We have no evidence. We have lots of evidence for early Christians. We've got lots of evidence for different Christologies. And we have no evidence for any adoptionists anywhere. So that's a methodological caveat. We say, I can't disprove, I cannot interview every single person in the first three Christian centuries to prove there was never an adoptionist. But we have no evidence for it. And so that concession is to historical method, not to plausibility. It doesn't mean it's plausibly true that there's one out there. It's just, it's hard to prove a negative as a historian. Um, but you, you asked about Serenthus. Yeah, I'm just so, curious what your thoughts are on him because he, he so, he's so enigmatic uh, what was it? Charles Hill wrote an article about him years ago. I, I don't know if you've done much work on him in the past. Yeah, I have actually thought a good bit about Serenthus. I end up in this article with just a paragraph on him. And Serenthus leads the list of early Christian figures who are often described as adoptionists. But this Serenthus that we have described in our sources thinks that Jesus is an ordinary human. He's the son of Joseph and Mary. And in some accounts, not in all, but in some a separate being, a divine Christ, descends upon Jesus at his baptism, and then that divine being departs from the human Jesus at Jesus's death. The human Jesus never becomes divine, and the man who dies on a cross is not the Son of God. Instead, there is a spirit that possesses Jesus and then departs again. This is not adoptionism by any definition that scholars use today, and the attempt to sort of squeeze Serenthists into the category of adoptionism, or to say that Serenthus shares a Christology with other people we call as adoptionists, is really misleading. Here we have a spirit possession Christology. The spirit comes, the spirit of the divine Christ comes, the spirit of the divine Christ goes, human Jesus stays human, the divine Christ stays divine, and the two coincide but are not the same. This is not adoptionism. No, no. Definitely not. So what about the Ebionites? Aren't, everybody knows they're adoptionists, right? If not Serenthus, surely the Ebionites are adoptionists. Except no. <laughs> <laughs> Except no. Uh, so Ebionites think that Jesus is a human. And we actually have lots of people talking about Ebionites. Lots of people talking about Ebionites who don't have any real live Ebionites nearby. Our earliest sources for Ebionites really don't make Jesus here sound adopted or divine in any sense. So for our earliest sources, Jesus is a mere human. He has two human parents. And these early accounts explicitly deny that the Ebionites think that Jesus was the divine son. He is just an ordinary human who is perfectly keeping the Torah. And because of his perfect observance of the Torah, he's called the Christ. But he's not the divine son. He doesn't become divine. This is true for all of our second and third century sources. We have a slightly different 
description from one of our late fourth century figures on the other side of the Nicene watershed, someone who does not know any Ebionites, who is not in contact with any Ebionites, there may not be any Ebionites. In fact, it is a fair historical question if Ebionites ever exist as a group at all, or whether this is a set of Christological ideas that people in the second and third centuries talk about as if they are the ideas of a group. Would anyone in the second or third century say, hey, I'm an Ebionite? It's possible. It's not certain at all. It might well be that the Christology described as Ebionite by our second and third century sources exists. That I think is clear. But whether it is the theology of a self-defined group of Ebionites who share this theology is a much messier proposition. One of the challenges of early Christian heresiology, that is, early Christian thinking about the ideas of other people and groups, is that it's easy to turn an idea into a group or turn a person and their ideas into a group. Certainly, that's a very effective tactic that they used, yeah. right? To if you can, if you can identify the the first person who had the idea, and then call all the people who agree with that person after that person's, you know, you've almost like already yeah. won. It, you know, it's just a it's just a strategy that you know is I would argue not really a very Christian strategy in a lot of cases, uh, but it was very effective. Well, and historically, a lot of Christians use it. Um, if they can say, well, we are Christians, and that those people with those other ideas are this group of not Christians, but something else, you're Ebionites. Um, but to come back to Ebion and the later evidence for him, starting in the late fourth century, people start re-describing Ebion in ways that sound more and more like Arius. This isn't about what Ebion thought, it's not reflected in any of the early sources for Ebion. Rather, what's happening is that people are imagining, in the wake of the Council of Nicaea in 325, people are imagining a prehistory to Arius's heresy, going right back to the beginning. This habit of making genealogies of heresy is a really common thing we see in early Christian heresiology, in the writing of heresy texts. And so the alignment of Ebion with Arius, and also this move which muddles Ebionite ideas with Corinthus's Christology, are both things that are attested starting in the later fourth century. Epiphanius of Salamis, who's a bishop in Cyprus, will describe Ebion sometimes in ways that sounds like sound like the second and third century accounts where Jesus is just a good law-following human. But in some of his accounts, he has that sort of earlier description, and he adds in the coming and going divine Christ of Corinthus's theology. None of our second and third century evidence for Ebionites includes that. That seems to be either Epiphanius's mistake, quite plausibly, or his inference, his assumption that Serinthus and Ebion actually share theologies, and so you can extrapolate from Serinthus to Ebion. I don't think we should think about this as intentional deception. I think it's fourth century scholarly inference. I also think it's wrong. But I think that what we see here is Epiphanius trying to make sense of earlier Christologies that diverge from his own and doing so in a way that's not quite accurate. In any case, we don't have the key features of adoptionism here. We don't have a human Christ who becomes divine. We don't have a moment of adoption where the human Christ becomes God's son. Yeah. Sometimes I ask myself uh, when I encounter church history individuals, I ask myself, would I want to have lunch with that person? 
And I think the answer with Epiphanius is is no. I, I don't... Although, like, his Greek is enjoyable to read because it's actually not that hard. <laughs> like, it's the only good thing I can say about him. You know, he just seems like kind of the, the sort of person that would try as hard as he could in a conversation to find some way to call you a heretic. Some little area where you diverged. Uh, that's kind of my take on him. I don't know if you would agree I, with that. I have a growing appreciation for Epiphanius, I have to say. On the one hand, sure, he calls a lot of people names. That's indisputable. But he also just is a collector of the weird and wonderful. He's a storyteller. And it's not clear to me that if you had a pint with Epiphanius, that he would call you a heretic. He would just tell you 20 stories about other things that he has seen or heard that he thinks is bonkers. All right. Well, hey, I, I've received I that. think I think that's actually someone you might want to go to the pub with, as long as you don't give him too much to drink. Right, right. Uh, let's come back to the Ebionites. Do you think there's any connection between James and the early Jewish community in Jerusalem? Like, uh, well, or maybe the migrants who left after the war or right before the war, depending on what your view is on that. Like, what, what, what do you think about that idea of the, the early Jewish Christianity? So in keeping with a good bit of scholarship over the, over the last 20 years, I'm skeptical about the entire category of Jewish Christianity, except insofar as one can say more helpfully that all early Christ followers are Jews. And that gradually the ethnic composition of the emergent Christian movement gradually changes. But a specific subset of hybridized Jewish Christianity is a problematic framework. Here, I think, especially about a very influential and really well done edited volume from Adam Becker and Annette Reed called The Ways That Never Parted, which problematizes the whole framework of Jewish Christianity. Or there's another marvelous book actually back there on my shelf by Matt Jackson McCabe about Jewish Christianity and the problems with how modern scholars invented this as a category to deal with religious difference, really in the early modern period in Europe of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. So I would actually want to bracket Jewish Christianity as a category altogether. But what we do have evidence for in the earliest Christian sources is various ways in which ethnically Jewish Christ followers agree and disagree with other authorities in the Jesus movement. That's pretty clear. The problem is the evidence for any group of people leaving Jerusalem in the wake of or directly before uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE is very thin. And the argument about connecting groups of Ebionites with the followers of James in Jerusalem seems not to be derived from evidence but instead is, again, 4th century extrapolation. Historians like Eusebius of Caesarea are trying to make sense of the conflicts they read in what is, at this point for them, the New Testament authoritative Book of Acts, where, and also in the Pauline Corpus. So they're taking conflicts between Jews and Gentiles about the nature of Torah and law observance that they're reading in their New Testament texts. And they're trying to map those onto what they recognize in their contemporary world and maybe recent past, where there are Jewish Christ followers who engage in practices that people like Eusebius, who is himself a bishop in Roman Palestine, who does have some degree of interaction with Jewish neighbors, including, it seems, 
Christ-following Jewish neighbors. That this is an attempt to connect dots. This is historical reconstruction or uh, elaboration, not good independent evidence. And so I'm, I'm skeptical about any genealogy for Ebionites that starts with James in Jerusalem. Instead, I think what we're talking about is scholars in the fourth century trying to make sense of the diversity of Christian belief and practice that they observe in the world they live in. Thank you for that. So let's talk about, let's shift gears and talk about Theodotus. Uh, he and his followers yeah. are often cited as adoptionists, but they affirmed the virginal conception of Christ, right? Uh, at least some of our later sources seem to indicate that. Yeah, yeah. And here it's important to say that virginal conception is a thing that you can have in Greco-Roman science. You don't need two parents in some theories of conception. Uh, Jared Secord, a wonderful colleague who works in Alberta, has written a very, very good article showing how the Theodati seem to understand Jesus's single parent conception, which is maybe a better framing than virginal conception, but the single parent conception using the tools of Galenic second century science. What on this theory the divine spirit is doing in Jesus's birth is making sure that what emerges is a fully formed proper human and not some sort of, as they would describe it, aberrant or monstrous birth. All right. Uh, you've got to tell me more about Galen here because I have not read that article and that sounds juicy. So give us a, a, a quick summary. Like, what are we talking about here? What's the theory that he's working with? Yeah. Can you have procreation with just one seed? That's the basic question. Again, in ancient terms, do you need contributions from multiple parents? Do you have a theory of conception where, as many people in antiquity think, a father provides the form and the mother provides the matter? Can the form be provided as well as the matter by the mother? Is there actually a confluence of forms derived from father and mother? This is this is the framing question. Clearly the mother is providing the matter and here we're talking about mary so in ancient science the mother is providing the matter but where's the form coming from and in this account jesus is the result of not a father's providing of seed to give the form but it's a one parent conception and what's god doing god is ensuring that what forms in Mary out of the matter is a human form and not something else. So again, the ancient science is weird to us, but the crucial claim here is about Jesus being fully, really human, even though he doesn't have a father. This might sound to us a lot like what we imagine as the divine birth, but that's not how the Theodati talk about it or imagine it. And they're probably thinking about this in terms of real ancient philosophical worries about gods having sex with humans. It seems wrong to them to imagine the divine procreating at all. And there, I mean, this is also a broader topic in first, second, third century philosophy. Why would gods have sex with humans? Why would gods procreate with humans? This seems inappropriate to the divine. So the Theodati are coming up with a different way of understanding Jesus as having a single human parent and divine involvement in his birth that doesn't involve what 
seems to be the really ethically problematic, you know, think about stories of Zeus committing sexual violence against human women, as well as men, actually. Um, we, we don't want implications of divine sexual violence here, but also they're worried about just the fact that how can a divine being procreate with a human at all? It's, it's both the ethical, but then also the biological or physical question. This is a theory that gets them away from that set of potential challenges in their environment. It's not one in which Jesus is the son of God. It's one in which Jesus is a human who's born with divine overshadowing or guidance. In fact, what the divine spirit is doing here is ensuring that Jesus has the same nature as all other humans. Well, would you say that he's a son of God in the sense that Adam is a son of God? Well, we could say that, but the Theodati don't seem to say that. We might imagine that just as Luke describes Adam as the son of God because God forms him. So we, we might bring that category to play, but that's not what the Theodati do. That's not their claim. Jesus is a real human whose birth is overseen in divinely providential ways. And of course, the Theodati, again, are deploying ancient medical and philosophical tools to think through how this might work. It seems to me like what's happening is that Theodati are reading texts like what are in the eventual Christian New Testament and trying to make sense of them with their philosophical and medical tools. Mm. Okay. Well, let's move on to Paul of Samosata. I saw yeah. you cited Paul Sample. I got a hold of his dissertation from Northwestern a little while ago and was impressed to see he had collected and translated so many sources about Paul. Uh, what do you make of Paul of Samosata's Christology? Uh, I'm just curious. Yeah. Not an adoptionist. No, no, clearly not. So we have to be, we have to be careful with Paul of Samosata. Paul of Samosata is active in the 60s and maybe early 70s CE. And unfortunately, we really don't have sources that aren't entangled with the Nicene controversies or the conflicts around areas. There just aren't sources that are uninvolved in the Christological debates of the early fourth century. There are only you know, 50-ish years between when Paul dies and Nicaea, and most of our sources actually come from the very late third century or into the early fourth century and then beyond. We don't have good evidence for Paul except in the shadow of Nicaea. That's the first point to make. It's historiographically challenging. We have a lot of sources. They're really confusing. They're very incomplete. They're being used by the people using them, mostly not to talk about Paul, but again, to give a genealogy for, a backstory for how Arius got to be the heretic that he is. And yet, the key thing that does emerge is that Jesus is an ordinary human. Jesus Christ is from below. There's no hint of adoption, and Jesus isn't divine. And so there's a lot we don't know about Paul's Christology, a lot of things that we can debate and argue about how he understands Jesus' identity. But what's very clear is that Adoption is off the table. Adoption isn't narrated. It doesn't show up in any of our sources here. And Jesus isn't divine. If Jesus is, in some sense, commissioned by the divine or representing the divine, that's a different question. And this is the point where we get to the conflation of Paul with Arius's son who is made. Jesus here is clearly a human who is created. And, but how is he a divine agent? In what way does Jesus act for or represent God on earth? 
That's the question that Paul is trying to think through. But adoption and divinity aren't the ways he answers that question. Yeah, very good. So your conclusion after analyzing the evidence, uh, which you kind of we we kind of started with this, so it's not going to be a surprise. Yeah. But your conclusion is that uh, none of these authors were adoptionists. So the question I have then is, why then do you think scholars for so long have clung to this category? Do you think it was a delegitimizing tactic, or oh, they're not real Christians since they deny what Matthew and Luke say about the virgin birth? Or what do you think? I mean, interestingly, some of these figures do have a virgin birth. They just don't have a, what we might say, high Christology. Why have scholars clung to this category? We have been a little bit beguiled by the genealogies that our post-fourth century sources give us. We have followed in insufficiently careful and contextually attentive ways the arguments that fourth, fifth, sixth century figures are making who don't care about any of the figures we're talking about here. They care about Arius. They care about the debates that happen at the Council of Chalcedon about the relationship between Jesus's natures. They're not actually, these, these later Christological debates are not focused on Serinthus or Ebionites or even Palosanasada, certainly not on the Theodati. All of those figures that we've talked about today are sort of tools or building blocks in later arguments. Why have we gotten stuck with the category of adoptionism? mostly because we didn't read carefully the actual sources that we have for these early figures. We've been more interested in later debates too. Only relatively recently, um, really starting in the beginning of the 20th century and then with a vibrant resurgence in the 1990s, has there been a scholarly move toward thinking about these figures as evidence for very early adoptionism? And this comes out of real grappling with some of the puzzling features of the New Testament Gospels. It's not actually explicitly clear what happens at the baptism, say, in Mark. Is Jesus being appointed by God as son? Is he being recognized as already son? Does sonship actually imply divine identity? These are questions that theologians have about Mark's gospel. And so at some level, the category gives us a way of reading back into puzzling New Testament texts. It serves as a sort of hermeneutical key for people to understand potential alternative theologies that could be at work in the New Testament. Unfortunately, misreading the second, third, even fourth century evidence doesn't help us then provide a good and responsible plausibility structure for thinking about readings of the New Testament texts. But that's why it has thrived as a category, because we think it helps us do two things that, on the whole, scholars have cared about more, understand the Christological controversies of the fourth and fifth centuries, and understand the New Testament itself. And people haven't spent enough time on the actual sources and the actual delightful weirdness of some of the sources that we do have for the second and third centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about early high Christology, if you don't mind. You steered clear of it in the article, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I, I tried not to dig into the whole early high Christology question in the article, just because that is another article or book, perhaps. And here I was trying to keep the argument constrained to one particular category of problem that I think is unhelpful in asking larger questions like, what is the earliest attested Christology, the earliest attested understanding of who Jesus is and about if he has a divine identity? I am 
broadly persuaded by the work of scholars like Richard Hayes that in their own ways, each of the four New Testament gospels attests a theology in which Jesus represents and manifests God's own identity acting in the world. I also, as a historian, want to be very cautious not to immediately deploy fourth century categories again to describe that. I think that ecclesial communities today often do, and that's fine for their purposes. But if we're asking historical questions, we do really need to be careful to recognize what questions the New Testament texts are and are not answering, and what vocabularies they are and are not using to answer those questions. The same thing applies to Paul. Paul has a divine Christ. Paul does not make fully explicit the way in which his divine Christ participates in the divine being of the one Paul calls God or Father. It may seem quite clear to Paul. Paul himself may not be interested in parsing this out quite as much as later systematic theologians might be. And so the, what I would encourage readers, scholarly or uh, non-scholarly, to do is to be careful not to try to make texts answer questions they're not trying to answer. Paul, John, none of the Snoppets are trying to do nice, none of them are trying to do nice in theology. And if you ask them to do nice in theology, they're going to be unsatisfying Nicene theologians. If you ask them to be modern adoptionists, they're also going to be unsatisfying modern adoptionists. And so I, I broadly am persuaded by the arguments of scholars who advocate for seeing an early high Christology in the earliest Christian writings, including Paul and the New Testament Gospels. But I am also hesitant about the ways that that claim gets so quickly redeployed to make those texts say things in ways they don't say, and we need to say things they don't say. We have to recognize that these texts don't answer all of our questions. They don't say things the ways we might want them to. Yeah, I, I came across an article by Paula Fredrickson, and she uh, was talking about like two sections within Early High Christology Club. Uh, it, it was uh, some Brill collection of essays i don't know if you saw it but uh yeah she wrote i think she wrote the last chapter in it and uh she was she was talking about how there are some early high christology people that because she considers herself to be part of the club yeah which i was surprised but i was like all right well this is interesting but she's like well but i'm not like you know in the in the upper section of the club i'm i'm kind of like a lower a lower high Christology, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, f I found that to be interesting. So she she's comfortable seeing a divine uh, Christ in his ascended role. Um, and if, if I remember correctly, she also sees preexistence in Paul, which others uh, have debated. Uh, Andrew Perryman just wrote a book in the form of a God, right. where he he collected together a number of pretty strong arguments against preexistence in Paul. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you want to elaborate any further or if we should just move on. Yeah, no, I, I do. I do, in fact, think that Paul has some sort of notion of preexistence. Again, I would want to put asterisks on that because Paul is not always interested in answering our question. But Paula Fredrickson's work is among that which has influenced me to the conclusions I've reached, at least at this point in my career. I don't think, though that pre-existence is doing all of the same kinds of metaphysical work for Paul that it's doing for others. In part because Paul isn't doing a theology that starts with a 
sort of theory of divine ontology. The pre-existent God who we can sort of philosophically determine to be X, Y, and Z shows up in Jesus. Paul reads everything back from the Christ event, which for him is fundamentally located in the revelatory moments of crucifixion and resurrection. And so whatever we can say about God as pre-existent, Paul reads back from his understanding of crucifixion and resurrection and not forward from a sort of prior philosophical understanding of what a divine being might be. So I, I do actually think that, especially in Romans and in the so-called Christ hymn, which I think is a Pauline composition, not a pre-existing, pre-standing hymn, both, but both in Romans 1 and then in Philippians 2, we see Paul using language that evokes ideas of pre-existence. Certainly, if Paul doesn't think this, other early post-Pauline figures, including the author of Hebrews, the author of Colossians, the author of Ephesians, all themselves do use stronger language indicating some idea of pre-existence. But all of these texts also have an apocalyptic kind of theology in which you have to read from the revelatory moments of crucifixion and resurrection and not start with a sort of abstract theology of God. Okay. Uh, have you had any feedback on your paper? Academic feedback happens slowly. So I expect people will engage with it in print over time. I expect I'll hear from people at some point. Not a whole lot yet. I mean, we've had a lovely conversation today. I had a conversation with Michael Bird, Michael Koch, uh, Down Under, um, that's also available online as a podcast somewhere. Uh, but I haven't heard back a lot yet. It came out in January. So honestly, the fact that we're even having, having a conversation now is fast on an academic timetable. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, in the podcast world, it's slow. So <laughs> there you have it. Um, yeah, Bird is funny on adoptionism. He... He seems to eschew the category, but then he uh, he sort of like applied it to, to the Theodoti, right? He lets it in the back door. Uh, in his, what was that book of his? Uh, Jesus Among the Gods. Jesus the, uh, right? Well, no, Jesus the Divine Son, I think. Jesus well, I'm talking about the more recent one. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Oh, no, I know what you mean. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, but his, his Jesus the Divine Son book was one of the works that I found helpful to push against in the framing of this article we're talking about today. So what did, what did he say when you converse with him? I think he basically concedes the point that the Theodati aren't really adoptionists. What he would want to say, though, is that they feel adoptionisty. That is, they feel closer to the category. So he's willing to let the category die. I think that's, that's right. Clearly, no one else is populating the category. A category of one group is a weird category. And I think he would see some degree of divine essence in the overshadowing of the spirit that the Theodati describe. Whether that's the same thing as divine identity, whether that's the same thing as divine sonship is a different question. Um, but his starting point is that the Theodati are working from an early high Christology and moving somewhere else. And so they bring traces of a divine Christ with them in their thinking. That's how he gets there. It's still clear from the sources we have that no adoption and no divinity are described. But I, I see where he's coming. It's still not great adoptionism. Not least there's no adopting. But I understand that he's trying to think through the ways in which that particular theology relates to theologies that do maintain a strong divine identity, which are also clearly attested in the second century. And from that framework, if you're putting two things into conversation, I think at least 
adoptionism helps you ask better questions. And the first answer is no, it's not adoptionism. But the second answer is, well, yeah, this is closer than anything else. And maybe the category can help us ask, well, in what ways does it or does it not fit that heuristic box? Well, I'm rooting for you. I think uh, you're doing good work. What uh, What's up next for you? Yeah, I'm currently working on a book on the emergence of gospel as a literary category in the second century. Uh, here, I'm spending a lot of time with other writers from the Antonine and Severan periods, roughly the very end of the first century to the mid second century, thinking about how people categorize books and organize libraries. You'll, you'll notice one of the one of the undergirding concepts of this article we've been talking about today is the question of how do you make Christological categories? What work does category making do in shaping ideas, in cultivating conversations, in excluding options, excluding conversations? Category making is also the central question of this book I'm working on now. It's not a book about Christology. It's a book about organizing the library. But again, the question of how are Christians and their non-Christian contemporaries in the second and third centuries thinking about multiple books on the same topic, about organizing related texts into the library, about categorizing books, about negotiating different versions. These are practical questions that occupy many readers, not just readers of Gospels. And at the same time, conversations about the emergence of a gospel canon have often ignored these broader questions about how do people in the second and third centuries, how do people in this formative period for Christianity think about organizing the library? So that's the project I'm working on now. It'll be out in a couple of years, I hope. Okay, very good. Uh, and so if people wanted to know more about you, uh, where would they go? Uh, my faculty page, just Google my name and Jesuit School of Theology has you know more about my work. It also has links to open access versions of most of my publications. I do my best to make sure my publications are open access whenever I can. It's not always possible. Some publishers make that tricky, but I do my best to make it so that everything's free um, when, it, when, it, when it can be. And so links to a lot of that work are available on my, public, my faculty page. That's very good. Thanks for that. Well, thanks for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. Well, that brings this interview to an end. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 523, Rethinking Adoptionism with Jeremiah Coogan, and leave your questions and thoughts there. Also, I wanted to mention that I recently redid our recommended podcast page on restitutio.org under the tab Other Podcasts. There were some podcasts on there that are no longer active, so I removed them and I added a bunch more, including... Tom Hoosty's Unitarian Anabaptist, which is on YouTube, uh, which seeks to get together the Anabaptist and Unitarian traditions, uh, which he believes are mutually strengthening since they both restore Christianity prior to its man-made creeds. Uh, I also include on there Sam Tiedemann's Transfigured podcast, in which he interviews a variety of Bible scholars and church historians and does a lot of interesting work. I put on there Deep Talks by Paul Ann Leitner, which explores the relationship between theology and meaning-making. Some of his really interesting episodes are where he analyzes recent films, such as the Marvel movies or the DC movies, and shows the cultural longings and how Christianity connects to it. Interesting thoughts there. I added the Bible Project podcast with Tim Mackey and John Collins, and the, you know, of course, they do a variety of interesting topics from really almost like a rabbinic Christian perspective, if I can say it like that. Tim Mackey approaches the Old Testament from a very Jewish angle, 
maybe not rabbinic, maybe that wouldn't be fair because he's not really into the Talmud, but he is certainly reading the Bible much more from a Jewish angle than from a Christian angle, which I think actually helps a lot. And then last of all, Theology in the Raw with Preston Sprinkle, who really tends to focus on hot-button cultural and theological issues. And uh, he's quite prolific, and he's got a lot of interesting guests on there. Of course, I don't endorse all these podcasts and everything that they say, but there are podcasts that I'm interested in and that I listen to, uh, some more than others, that offer valid and interesting perspectives. So take a look at that page if you're interested, if you're a podcast uh, listener who's looking for more stuff to listen to. And uh, if you have podcasts that you're listening to that I don't have on there, why not let me know? Uh, be interested to see what other people are listening to. Well, that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to support Restitutio, uh, you can do that on our website through either a monthly donation or a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us. It really does help, especially for covering our costs. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.